Good morning, everybody. We are in one of the most difficult passages in the Gospel of Matthew, and for that matter, maybe the entire Bible. Uh, Jesus is going to respond to a question regarding the temple, and in doing so, he is going to give a, a shocking, almost unthinkable answer to the people who were hearing it for the first time. It was cataclysmic, like otherworldly type of answer. Um, we're talking like catastrophic, next level, earth shattering type of answer. Jesus essentially tells some of his disciples to look at the temple, to look at its stones, and then he says, you see the magnificence of the temple. You see it. It's all going to come down. And in Matthew chapter 24, often called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple. Now keep in mind how significant that is. The temple is on the holy mountain in the holy city and it's a holy house. It is the place where heaven and earth meet. It is the place where God uniquely and profoundly manifests his presence. It's called the house of God. It's almost called the house of God. House means he lives there. Now, we, we talked about this. God is omnipresent, but he's choosing to dwell in a distinct way in the temple. The house of God, according to Jesus, is going to be destroyed. Now, as we said, uh, this is one of the more difficult passages in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Bible, for that matter. And let me lay out some of the difficulties, some of the landmines <clears throat> regarding how we interpret this. First, uh, Jesus is going to speak in something called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is a genre of literature that was around in kind of the first century world. It's a Jewish type of <clears throat> genre. And it deals with, with metaphors and symbols and images. Apocalyptic means unveiling. And so using symbols and images and metaphors, you unveil some types of truth that were previously hidden. So in our culture, we're familiar with literature like science fiction or fantasy or nonfiction, historical fiction. But you, know, you don't just go down to the bookstore and say, hey, can you point me to the first century Jewish apocalyptic section? Because we just you know, really like that type of reading. This is not there. So we're not familiar with this type of literature. It's a genre. Um, if you think apocalyptic literature, think about the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. So you might read some in the book of Revelation, something like, uh, and then there was a beast with, with four heads and it devoured all of the wheat. That's apocalyptic literature. Or then there was a swarm of locusts and upon each locust was the, the face of a man devouring the nations. It's like, okay. Or like uh, there's a dragon with four horns. Now, what the apocalyptic literature is doing is that it's showing, okay, so you picture a dragon with four horns, and it might be communicating something like this. There are four smaller empires that unite to form one super evil empire. So there's a dragon with four horns, a giant empire composed of four smaller empires united to do evil. Poetry, symbols, images, metaphor, that's the language of apocalyptic literature. So already it's going to be very difficult. Number two, the key to understanding apocalyptic literature is the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. And so in order to understand the images, the metaphors, the patterns, the symbols, you have to be saturated in the Old Testament. The problem is if we're honest with ourselves, we are more familiar as modern Christians with the New Testament than the Old Testament. The New Testament comes easier to us reading it and understanding it. On top of that, the Old Testament is just a lot longer. 
There's a lot more stuff to know in the Old Testament than there is the New Testament. So there's another layer that makes it difficult for us to interpret. Third issue is Matthew 24, uh, even though it's, it's, it's a difficult passage, there's a level of familiarity that we all have with it. If you've been a Christian for some time or you were raised a Christian, you're familiar with it. And even if not, verses from Matthew 24 are, are the ones that are often quoted, like in the scary movies about the end of the world. And so we hear these verses, but for the most part, we hear them isolated and removed from the entirety of the context in Matthew 24 and removed from the exact historical context that brings them about in Jesus' speech in the Olivet Discourse. So there's a level at which we know some of this stuff, but that familiarity might actually be a detriment to a proper understanding. And then lastly, the reason why this becomes really difficult is um, Jesus is going to give us a vision in Matthew 24, and it's apocalyptic, it's cataclysmic, it's, it uses incredible language and images. And when people come to that passage, many look at it and say, all of those things that Jesus are talking about have occurred already historically. Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse in the early 30s AD, and they're leading up to an event in 70 AD. Then there's some people who would say, none of this stuff has all happened, it's all in the future. And then there's some people who um, try, try and look at it and go, okay, maybe there's something more going on here in the text. Maybe it's not so nice, clean, and neat. Maybe it's a little of both. And as you're going to see, it's going to be very difficult to discern what is actually taking place. So there's all your warnings. Uh, it's going to be difficult. Stick with me. And by the end, even if all the historical details and the images and things are, are still kind of difficult or fuzzy, there's going to be some takeaways from this that apply to everybody and are of utmost importance for every single person in the room. Matthew 24. Leading up to Matthew 24, just a brief kind of summary of where we've been. Jesus has essentially, I've said this now, if you've been here every week, you've heard me start off every sermon by saying, Jesus has been increasingly making the religious establishment mad at him. Yes, for like five weeks, it's just he cleansed the temple, he gives parables condemning the religious leaders of the day, they try to trap him with three impossible questions. Jesus answers them, makes them look ridiculous. Then last week, Jesus gave the woes to the Pharisees. So it's like, it's on. The hostility, the fighting, the leaders leave. They want to kill Jesus. They want to get him crucified. And Jesus has pronounced judgment. After that, it records this. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to him to point out to him the buildings of the temple... But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple in its beauty and its majesty and its surrounding buildings, Jesus says, look at this. It's all coming down. It will all be destroyed. And I've showed you a similar image before. This is a scale model of Jerusalem. This is in Israel. You can go visit it. But this is a kind of scale model of what Jerusalem was like in the first century world. In the back, you see the rest of the city, but the dominant image in the front is the Temple Mount. That's the temple complex. It's a huge, massive platform with a huge, massive building in the center. And in the center of that center is the actual holy place, the sanctuary, the house of the Lord. 
Now, to give you an idea of the magnitude of this, this, this construction is these are some of the stones, broken as they are, bigger than human beings, that are used to build this. And there are stones far bigger than that that were used to build this. So this is a massive architectural achievement. The splendor and beauty of the temple was known throughout that region of the world. Pliny the Elder said it's, it's, the, it's the peak of all the cities in the east. It's beauty, architectural magnificence, it's like incredible. And Jesus says it's all coming down. Verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Okay, so first off, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. And just so you know, uh, the Mount of Olives would give you a beautiful view of the entire temple complex. You'd be looking at it from the eastern direction and you'd see the whole thing and its beauty. I mean, as the sun hits the limestone, there's just, it's radiant, it's gorgeous. Jesus says it's all coming down. And the disciples say, when is that going to happen? Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's a very important question. But this leads to the difficulty of this passage and the confusing nature of the question. Jesus says the temple's gonna come down. The disciples ask a question, but in that question, they actually ask two questions. Do you see it? They say, tell us when that's gonna happen. When is the temple coming down? But then they immediately on top of that add, and what will be the sign of the coming, of your coming at the end of the age? So essentially, when's the end of the age? When's the, 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 the end? When is the second coming? Now, here's the, the difficult part. In the disciples' mind, these two events are probably not separated. And even if they are separate, they're probably not separate by too much distance because the destruction of the temple, the house of God, would be so cataclysmic and earth-shattering that obviously that meant the end of the age is here. We're about to enter into something new. And so if the, the temple is destroyed, that is also likely, in their mind, the time when the end of the current age would, would begin and the new age would begin. So think of it like this. There's two things at play the destruction of the temple, and what we'd call the parousia, the second coming of Christ. Now, which is it? What is Jesus going to answer? For some people, they look at Matthew chapter 24, and they say all of that is dealing with the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. <clears throat> so they say in Matthew 24, Jesus is prophesying things that will happen leading up to AD 70. So we look back and see how these prophecies will fulfilled between the decades of the 30 AD and 70 AD. Then there's some people who say, no, just read it, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like the end of the world is being talked about in Matthew 24. This is actually Jesus answering the second part of the question and talking about the signs of the times, if, 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 if you will, about the second coming of Jesus. Then there's some people who go, well, let's not make it complicated. Uh, they ask two questions. Jesus is gonna answer both questions. And they divide chapter 24 up into two sections with something in the middle. And they would say, from Matthew chapter 24, verses three through 31, Jesus is giving his disciples a prophecy about the coming of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. 
Then there is this quick middle section about a fig tree that breaks up the first half and the second half. And in the second half, Matthew 24, verses 36 through 51, Jesus answers the second part of the question about when will the end of the age come? When's the second coming of Jesus? Okay. Then some people go, yeah, I think Jesus is talking about two events, the destruction and his second coming, but I don't know if it's so nice, neat, and clean as 24, 3 through 1 are about this, and then 24, 36 through 51. And so they say you have to use extra levels of discernment to try and figure out what's going on. Okay? So it's apocalyptic literature. The dictionary is the images of the Old Testament. We have all kinds of things working against us. It's one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, and it's a big chunk, and uh, there's all kinds of debate upon did it happen? Is it yet to happen? Is it both? And if it is both, how does the bothness manifest itself in the text? Let's go. Here's the question. Tell us, When will these things be? The destruction of the temple and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? This is how Jesus responds to that. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. All right, so you've been a Christian for a while. You've heard the phrase, when you hear about wars and rumors of wars, right? And usually it's said in the context of you just watch the news and there's all kinds of war stuff going on. They go, hey, The Bible warned us there's wars of war. This is a sign of the time we're entering into the end of days. That's usually how it's done, right? Okay. When you look at this and you're saying, is this events leading up to 70 AD or is this events leading up to the present day? You have to ask the question, well, what does it sound like? Was there wars and rumors of wars leading up to 70 AD? Uh, Yes. Was there earthquakes and famines? Yes, we actually have the historical records of massive earthquakes, three in particular, massive famines, all leading up to 7080. Was there wars and rumors of war? Yes. Okay, it's got to be 7080. But then you ask yourself, you know, that sure sounds like today. You know, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, catastrophes, horrible accidents, that kind of sounds like today. Fair enough. But then ask yourself, I wonder if I asked like my great-grandfather living in the events leading up to World War I, do you think there's wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines? And he would say, yes. Now our typical response is to go, that's because we're living in the end times. Okay, what does Jesus tell us? This is, I'm, I'm telling you guys, there's, there's always like a fervor when it comes to Bible verses about the end that sometimes we miss like what's just there. Jesus says there are going to be wars and rumors of wars and all of these things, but what? Don't be alarmed for the end is not yet. Like we read this backwards. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, but don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. It's not yet. So Jesus is outlining something that is certainly possibly true in leading up to 70 AD, but it's also taking place today and it takes place all throughout human history. 
And when you see catastrophes taking place in the world, your response is to follow the words of Jesus. Don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. It's not yet. That is normal human history. Throughout the course of human history, you will see these things. If you were alive at the, in, the age of, in the days of World War II and you saw what was taking place in World War II and a leader trying to take over the world and killing ethnic Jews by the millions, you would certainly think, man, we got to be near the end. But the end was not yet goes on, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, when you read that, does that sound like it's leading up to 70 AD with the destruction of the temple or the end of the world? It's tricky. It's tricky. Let's walk through it. Um, did, were people persecuted and handed over to death before 70 AD? Yes. Some of the apostles included, most of them, and many other Christians. They'd been killed and treated horrifically. Uh, did many fall away and betray each other and hate each other? Yes. Uh, did many false prophets arise? Yes. And did lawlessness increase and the love of many people grow cold? Absolutely. All of that happened prior to 70 AD. Does it sound like it's happening today, though? <laughs> um, yeah. Are Christians being persecuted today? Yes, by the hundreds of thousands, locked up in prison, mistreated, killed. Uh, have many fallen away? Yeah. Have they betrayed each other? Is there, is there more lawlessness in our culture and does it appear as if love is growing cold? Absolutely. All of that stuff. You're going, man, this, this could be any, at any, any point. But then there's this other interesting thing. This work gets really tricky. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And you go, well, that surely didn't happen before 70 AD. Okay. For the people who think all of this is talking about events leading up to the destruction of the temple, what they will do is they'll point out, no, you have to understand apocalyptic literature and you have to understand the way certain phrases are used in scripture. So this talks about the gospel being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And that didn't happen. Factually did not happen prior to 70 AD. It wasn't through the whole world. However, people would quickly point out, no, that's not how the phrase the whole world is used, oftentimes in the New Testament. So for example, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it says that Caesar gives a census to the whole world. But Caesar didn't give a census to the whole world. It was to the region of the Roman Empire, what was under his jurisdiction. There's also in the book of Acts, it says that a famine went through the whole world. And the famine wasn't through the whole world, it was through the known inhabitable world and specifically that region that the author was talking about. Then, even more importantly and relevant to this, the Apostle Paul says in one of his epistles before the end of his life, before 70 AD, he says that the gospel has been made known to all nations. So it's like, well, what's going on there? 
Well, the way the language is working is just for Paul to say the gospel is made known to all nations. He's not saying every last nation has heard the gospel. He's saying that the gospel is going out and it's reached a lot. It's going out like people would never have imagined, but he wasn't being precise. Every last nation on the face of the earth has heard the gospel. So some people say, no, once you understand Jesus is asking the question, answering the question about the destruction of the temple, and his point is the gospel's beyond Jerusalem. It's went to the Jews, then the Samaritans, and now to the Gentiles, so it's going out to the whole world. So they say, no, no, you're still talking about events leading up to the destruction of the temple. And then you would have others say, I don't buy it. Now this is where it gets interesting and pretty concrete. Then Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, now Jesus says, so, so there were some generalities. When you hear wars of rumors of wars, there's trial, there's tribulation, don't be alarmed, don't be fooled, don't fall for false teachers, the end is not yet. Do you follow this? The end is not yet. Now Jesus says, when you see this, run for your life. Do you feel the weight of this? And not just people who are in Jerusalem where the destruction of the temple is going to occur. If you are in Judea, the southern region of Israel, if you're there, run and hide in the mountains. Run for your life. So this is why you have to read this literature slow. Because if you just jumble it all together, then anytime you hear of wars of rumors of wars, you run into the mountains. No, the end is not yet, but now let me tell you, when you see this, know it's time. So it's pretty important that we know what, what's he talking about. So what is this abomination of desolation? Because you're going like, oh, okay. When we see that, we know what to do. Okay. Matthew, in parentheses, says, let the reader understand. So it's his way of saying, if you really want to understand what this is about, you really need to know what the book of Daniel is, is about and what's going on in there. And the book of Daniel, written roughly 500 years before the time of Jesus, has the prophet Daniel recording a prophecy about this abomination of desolation, a type of desecration or blasphemy or idolatry that will occur in the house of God. Daniel's prophecy came true in 167 BC. In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a general and someone who claimed to be deity on earth, took over the region of Israel. And he went into Jerusalem, took over. It was horrific. There's brutality, torture. Antiochus essentially made it to be illegal to be Jewish in any sense of the word. He outlawed Sabbath observance, outlawed circumcision. He was burning Torah scrolls. He was forcing people to sacrifice to false gods. At the climax of the takeover of Antiochus Epiphanes, he marches into the sanctuary, the house of the Lord, into the Holy of Holies, and he makes it an altar to Zeus, and he sacrifices pigs, swine, an unclean animal, on the altar of the Holy Holies to Zeus. Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled in this abomination of desolation that took place in 167. What Jesus says, if you want to understand and know when it's time to leave Jerusalem, you are going to see an abomination of desolation event. You're gonna see something like what you saw with Antiochus. And when you see that, when you see something like that event occurring in Jerusalem, you run for the hills. Now, 
the question is, was there anything leading up to 70 AD that sounds and looks like this abomination of desolation? And there actually is. There's a few actual candidates. And it could be one of the three things or maybe <clears throat> all three of them combined. The first was in 40 AD, the emperor Gaius ordered that a statue of himself would be placed in the temple. Now, a statue is an image. If you're a Jewish person in this time period, the second command is no images, right? So he would be violating the second commandment and by nature the first commandment and setting up a statue for worship and adoration in the temple. So 40 AD, if you were listening to the words of Jesus, you might be you know, looking for a real estate agent going, this is, this is like abomination of desolation type of stuff. I need to get out. Uh, Gaius was assassinated in 41 AD, so uh, the statue never, never got placed there, but at least was something to tell you, look what's coming, look what's coming. So it's possibly that. The other thing that occurred in 68 AD is, and we'll get into this in a moment, but as Jerusalem is under siege, among the Jewish people, rival factions develop and they start to fight each other. And in some of this fighting, the zealot party actually ends up killing other Jewish men in the temple. And so blood is shed in the temple, human blood. Now, if you're wise and you're, you're kind of discerning, you're going, Antiochus shed the blood of pigs in the temple. And now our own people are shedding human blood in the temple on holy ground. This is an abomination before the Lord. It's time to get out. The third thing could be just the general idea that when Rome was coming to Jerusalem to, to take over in the, in the time period leading up to 70 AD, that um, you know that Rome is the super empire and when they take over, they're gonna, they're gonna do all kinds of blasphemous, idolatrous worship in the holy places on top of the mountain. So that's coming, so get out. Nevertheless, the point is this there were a number of things that appeared to be abomination of desolation-like events leading up to 70 AD that would let people know it's, it's time to get out. Now listen to how urgent the words of Jesus are. When you see something like this occurring in the temple, this is how, how urgent you need to take the call to leave. Let no one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Do you follow this? When you see this thing, run for your life. Don't even go back to your house. Don't even go into your house and gather valuables. Don't go, don't go gather the pictures that you want. Don't go gather your precious items. None of it. You see that, you run for your life. If you're working and you put your coat down 50 yards the other direction, don't even bother with it. You run. Get out of Jerusalem. Run for your life. You have no idea what's coming. Do you feel the weight of Jesus' words? And he's like, how horrible it will be for women who are pregnant or who have young children. You're gonna run for your life and go up into the mountains and then you're gonna have to fight for survival. How horrible it would be if this happened on a Sabbath because the Jewish Christians would, would have to wrestle with what, what, what does honoring the Sabbath look like in this type of an event? So what was that event? What? 
I mean, obviously, it's the destruction of the temple, but it's much more than that. I mean, it's absolutely horrific by any measure of historical standards what occurred in 70 AD. I'm not going to get into all the details because it's too much, but I, I want to just give you briefly some ideas about, so you can, you can feel the weight of Jesus' words. Get out, run for your life. The Jewish people fought a war against Rome from roughly 66 AD to 70 AD. And there would be times where the fighting was intense and there'd be times where it wasn't as intense, but it's roughly going on for about four years. Now, Rome understood that Jerusalem is a, is a well-protected city. And it is, it has massive walls and it's on a hill. And in the ancient world, the best defense you can get from an invading army is being on the top of a mountain and having great city walls to protect you. So as people just charge forward, I mean, you're just hitting them from the top again and again and again. And so for some time, Rome tried to break through the city walls and they failed. And eventually, Titus, who was the son of the emperor Vespasian, then implements something called siege warfare. Because if you can't break into the city walls, then you have to implement a different tactic. And what siege warfare is, is this. If you have the resources, the wealth, the troops, and the militaristic might, you surround the city with soldiers. You surround this, the entire, the whole thing with, with soldiers. And you're saying, if we can't get in, then no one's going to get in. And what's the effect of that? Starvation. You basically say, if we can't break through the city walls, we're going to starve you out. So... As the siege takes place, you could imagine the panic that starts to take place in the city. And one of the things that we briefly mentioned before was that in the ensuing panic, there would be rival factions developing. Different people with different answers, different parties. No, let's, let's compromise with the Romans. No, die before the Romans. No, let's unite with these people. Let's take out this tribe. So you have to picture this. As Rome is attacking and you're fighting off the Romans, the people inside the city are now fighting each other unto death. In addition to that, there is a short supply of food, and in a brief amount of time, the people in the city start to starve to death. And we know from the historical records that the, the, the lack of food was so bad that tons of people died from malnourishment, starvation, and there's even records of cannibalism taking place in the city. You have that, you have fighting each other, and you have the Romans coming. If at some point, once that siege began, you decided to try and escape, saying, I'm not fighting for this city. If you escape, most likely you were caught. And Josephus tells us that those who were caught were horrifically treated, tortured, and flogged, and then they were crucified facing forward to the city. And this happens to hundreds of individuals, so now your fellow people are wrapped around you on crosses. Eventually, the siege would be successful. Rome would come in. They would destroy the temple. At the order of, Cytus, at the order of Titus, son of Vespasian, the emperor, he said, you turn every stone in this place over. You destroy everything. And Josephus records that the massacre was so great, blood was rolling like rivers in the streets. When you see the abomination of desolation taking place, you run for your life. 
You run to the, if you forgot your coat, don't worry. Don't even go back to your house. Don't get any supplies. It's not worth it. You get out of here. So for some of the wise people who saw human blood being shed in the temple, that was in 68 AD, they saw that as a sign and they left Jerusalem. And we know from several historical records that many of the first Christians discerned the times, discerned the abomination of desolation, and they fled before the siege began. So while the war's going on, but before you're surrounded with siege warfare, many people left. And the historical records say that many Christians flew to a place called Pella in the mountains because they saw Jesus' words, get out, don't wait. Now you have to understand, you have to hear the, it sounds like, passage full of judgment, but remember the, the, remember the heart of God. The heart of God is revealed in the previous passage to Matthew chapter 24. At the end of Matthew chapter 23, last week, Pastor Sam taught about how Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed, like, like a mother hen, to gather up the chickens, how I've longed to gather you and protect you in my arms, but you would not have it so. And so Jesus has been ministering, offering grace and forgiveness and, and gospel truth and the kingdom. And he's, he's saying, I've longed to gather you. I, I, you the, the image is that of a, a mother wanting to save her children. Is there not a more powerful image of a mother wanting to do anything she can do to save her children? That's the image. But he goes, you would not have it so. And if you're going to live by violence and hatred and greed, then you're going to have violence and greed and hatred done unto you. And in 70 AD, the Romans come in and destroy the temple and destroy the city, and it's horrific scene by any historical standards. Now, for the next several verses, Jesus is going to go on and use um, the same type of imagery he's been using, where you wanna go, oh yeah, that sounds like stuff leading up to 70 AD, and then some of you are gonna go, that doesn't sound like stuff that happened before 70, that sounds like end of the world level stuff. What I wanna do is show you one that occurs in verse 29, and for sure sounds like end of the world level stuff. But as we're gonna see, it's actually a little bit more complicated. That's probably true of everything in this whole passage. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Jesus goes on and says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So when you're reading that and you're going, okay, is this stuff leading to 70 AD or is this end of the world level stuff? You're going, for sure, that's the second coming. There's Jesus coming in the clouds. The moon isn't shining. The sun isn't shining. The stars aren't shining. The constellations are falling out. Like, I know I'm not a history buff, but the sun and moon didn't stop shining in 70 AD. It's end of the world stuff. Maybe. Gotta understand this is apocalyptic literature. And what's the key to understanding apocalyptic literature? The Old Testament. And when you understand that, you know Jesus just isn't making up this image. He's not making up the image of the moon not giving light and the stars falling from heaven. He is quoting directly from the dictionary to apocalyptic literature, the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 13. 
Isaiah 13 reads this, it reads like this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Isaiah 13 says God is going to punish what? The world for its iniquity. And he says, this will also happen. You are going to see the land become desolation. And the stars from heavens, the constellations, they're not gonna give light. Sun will be dark, the moon will be dark. So when you read Isaiah 13, you're probably saying, well, that's, maybe Isaiah 13's talking about the end of the world. (laughs) Because that hasn't happened yet. Isaiah tells you what he's talking about. He tells you in the same chapter a few verses later. When is this, the, the sun gonna stop shining, the moon, and God will judge all the wicked? Isaiah 13, seven through 19. Behold, I am stirring up, stirring up the Medes. This is the Medo-Persian empire. I am stirring up this empire against them who have no regard for silver, do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter their young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of their womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. What's Isaiah talking about? Isaiah is talking about the collapse of the greatest empire of the world in that day. There is a new Guy on the, the new guy on the scene, the Medo-Persian Empire, and they are going to attack the greatest empire in the world, the Babylonian Empire. And what language does Isaiah employ to describe the destruction of Babylon? He uses apocalyptic language. Because what, what language do you have that would describe the upheaval of the entire political structure and environment in that day? If Babylon falls, they're, they're the greatest empire. Their hands are everywhere. You were talking about a cataclysmic, earth-changing political upheaval. What language would you use? Well, it's gonna be like the stars falling from the sky. That's how bad it's gonna be. So follow this. This is, this is crazy what, what occurs right here. The same language Isaiah uses to describe the fall of Babylon will now be used by Jesus to describe the destruction of the temple. That's heavy. The same language used to describe Babylon's fall is gonna be used to describe Jerusalem's fall. Go, okay, but there's still that whole thing about Jesus being in the clouds and him coming back, so that, that didn't happen. Right, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Okay, now, if you picture the Son of Man, if you picture Jesus coming in the clouds, what, what do you immediately think of? Just be honest. It's second coming, he's coming back. Like, Jesus is gonna come from the sky, like, you know, it's second coming. Now, how would a first century Jewish person who Jesus is talking to hear, oh, the Son of Man is going to to come uh, with the clouds? How would they hear that? Well, they would hear it through the lens of the Old Testament, and they would know that this is a direct quotation from the Hebrew Scriptures. This is from Daniel 7. In the book of Daniel, 
Daniel is given a vision of the throne room of God where the Ancient of Days is. And he says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. What's Jesus' favorite term for himself so far? Son of man. So one comes with the clouds of heaven, one who is like the son of man, and then what occurs? And he came to the ancient of days, the throne room of God, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when the disciples hear, you're going to see the whole son of man in the clouds thing, they have been waiting and longing for the prophecy of Daniel to be fulfilled, that a Messiah figure, one like the son of man, would be given the kingdom, dominion, and not just a small kingdom or a small dominion, but dominion over all things. He would be a king of kings and lord of lords over everything. And it wouldn't just be Israel who would worship him because all the nations and all the peoples and all their languages are going to serve him. So when did this happen? When did the Son of Man go to the throne room of God and receive power and dominion and all authority over all the nations? Within a few days from when Jesus gives this prophecy, he will be handed over to be crucified. Three days later, he would resurrect in power and glory. He will then spend some time with his first followers and the disciples, teaching them and preparing them for the mission of the church. And after that short period, what occurs? Jesus ascends into the heavens, into the sky, into the clouds, and there he goes and sits down at the right hand of the Father and is given all power, all authority, dominion over all the nations. The ending to the Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus saying what? All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So, Jesus says, you will see a sign in heaven. You're not gonna see a sign on earth, you're gonna see a sign in heaven, which is weird, because how are you gonna see that? <laughs> he says, the sign is gonna be that the Son of Man is given all glory and dominion about the nations. Now, what occurs between AD 30 and AD 70? According to the book of Acts, the gospel goes from the Jews to the Samaritans to the Gentiles. And you have Paul the Apostle claiming and proclaiming that the gospel has been made known to all nations and that now people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are swearing allegiance to the crucified Jewish Messiah. You gotta follow this. Israel is this small little speck and within a few decades from 30 to 70, there are people of every tribe, tongue, and nation from different languages bowing in allegiance to the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, the one to him belongs the kingdom and dominion. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not take, will not pass away. Okay. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said um, there's some people who think these verses are all about 
before the destruction, then the second half is about the return of Christ, and in the middle there's this little fig tree thing, that's this. So from here moving forward, many people think Christ is prophesying about the second coming, no longer the destruction of the temple. Now, what's very interesting is this last line. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Now, uh, especially if you've been in the church game a long time, you've heard that verse quoted. And usually it's used to talk about when you see signs of the end times, know that it's so close that the generation that sees those signs is not gonna pass away before the second coming. That's possible, but I'm gonna tell you what happened historically. Jesus prophesied the unthinkable in the 30s AD. He said the house of God will be destroyed. Every stone will be unturned. And he tells his disciples, the generation that sees the abomination of desolation, that generation will see this come to pass. And guess what happened? The most unthinkable, unpredictable thing occurred from a historical perspective. Within a generation of Jesus' prophecy, the temple and Jerusalem fell. And the Christians who were around in that day read and discerned the times and they fled from the city and they were spared. So it's possible that verse is doing something different there. And it's baffled many people. But what you understand is that this is actually the Jesus in a prophecy being vindicated. This is a great prophecy of Jesus that was vindicated within 40 years. So, First part, some people think all temple stuff. The last part, some people think it's all yet to happen and, and, and yet to occur. A few more of these. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay, so remember, remember the, the, the people after the fig tree? They say now Jesus is gonna start talking about the second coming. Now why do you think they think that? Listen to the change. Everything before was, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but don't worry, the end is not yet. But when you see this and this, run for the hills. And by the way, this generation is going to see it happen. Jesus is giving specific directions about a specific date, and he's revealing that to his people in order that they could flee. But then, listen to this. Then he goes, oh, but concerning that day. So you see how it's very easy to see a shift here. Concerning that day. Oh, you're talking about the second coming now. Concerning that day, an hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So there's a great argument to be made that there's a shift here taking place. Um, there's also a theological issue because it's kind of weird. It's like, how does Jesus not know when he's coming back? In the next couple weeks, we're gonna deal with that because we're gonna be talking about um, some parables that deal with the end and the second coming of Christ because uh, that's an important theological issue. But we have enough issues to deal with today from Matthew 24. So hold on for the other one. Now, here's the main point. Here's the, here's the main issue about the second coming. Verse, 20, verse 37. For as the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So this is Jesus' image for the second coming. There's gonna be people who think it's never coming and they're gonna go on living their lives. Their love will go cold, lawlessness will increase, but no one knows, no one knows. And just like the flood in Noah's day, when you least expect it and you thought the old crazy guy building the boat was weird, 
Turns out he was right all along and judgment comes. This is an incredible image for the second coming. Dude's over here being prepared, building an ark. And everyone's over here living their life like it's all good and out of nowhere, flood, judgment, destruction. Now, this is also important because what I think is going on here is we, we, we try to figure out what's 70 AD, what's the future, but you have to understand that all of Jesus' words in Matthew 24 sort of form a pattern and a template that, that's true, not just of pre-70 AD and the, the coming of Christ, but like it's always true. So um, nations and people turn their back on the Lord. Wickedness increases, lawlessness increases. Love grows cold, and then people desire violence and judgment, and they're given to greed and other sin. And because of that, they start to fall apart as a people, and they become weak. And then, when you least expect it, when you think everything's good, judgment. So what was true of 70 AD is something that true happens all throughout history. It repeats itself, which means we should all be terrified. It's like, oh, you turn your back on the Lord, you're given over to selfishness and violence and greed, you disobey God, you do what you think what's right in your own heart is true and pure. And then when you least expect it, the flood. Then the two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then finally, he ends with this last image. Who then is faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over the possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he did not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So succinctly said, there's gonna be people who know their master is coming back and they will live every day in light of that truth. There are some people who go, eh, he said he's coming back a long time ago. He hasn't come, he's never coming back. I'll do what I want, I'll live for myself, I'll treat others how I want. And then when that person least expects it, the master and his judge returns and he will have to face the judge. All right, you made it through Matthew 24. Okay. <laughs> It's going to be a test. I'm like, what year did Gaius order the statue? Okay, so what's going on? Remember, some people think this is all pre-70 AD. Some people think it's all end times. Some people try to draw a line in the middle. Um, brilliant people hold to all different views on this passage. I'm going to tell you what I think. I think it's talking about two events. And I think it's very difficult to draw nice, neat lines when you're talking things leading up to 70 AD and when you're talking about things leading up to the, to the second coming. What I do know is that Jesus is prophesying about concrete historical realities and for sure he prophesied the destruction of the temple and that was fulfilled within the generation of its hearers. But then you also have some other stuff that's there as well. 
And in one sense, that could be discouraging because you're like, how do I even figure this stuff out? In another sense, it should be encouraging because what I think is taking place is Jesus is giving his followers, whether they live in 70 AD or the end of the world or during World War II or in the Middle Ages, a, a pattern and a template to live in in light of his future return. And when you look at that, some, some important principles rise to the surface. I'm gonna show them to you as we close and, and um, they at first appear super basic, but th- they're, they're so important, they're so important. So first, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed, the end is not yet. That's the normal course of human history. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. Again, if you were living during World War I or World War II, or say the Black Death or some other world catastrophe that took place, 50 years from now, there's gonna be someone preaching. If you were alive during the years of 2020 through 2021, you would have thought the end, man, the whole world shut down. The end is not yet. So don't be fooled, because false teachers arise when those types of catastrophes happen. And you could say, no, I know no one knows when Jesus Christ is coming back. People, I'm, t- just, I'm speaking to you as, as with some pastoral experience here. Christians know that they know no one knows when Jesus is coming back. But yet, there'll be some book or some teacher that talks about some special Passover or some Sabbath or some moon or some rare thing in history and they begin to connect all the dots and now they go, well, I don't really know the date or the hour, but I, I kind of know like the month and year. <laughs> you know? And what happens is when the catastrophes and bad things are happening, it's really easy to begin to connect some dots. Don't be alarmed, don't be fooled. Jesus says the false teachers come out when that stuff happens. You start connecting the dots and seeing things that you don't know. And here's, here's just the word of warning. And for those of you who've been Christians for decades, you can testify to this. Um, like every decade has this occurred. There was things in the 60s, the 70s, in the 80s, someone lined it all up, in the 90s. You remember Y2K? It's kind of funny now, right? But but be honest, most of you in its day, 1999, you're like, we got the the generator, we got the water, got some extra food. Because in the moment, it's easy to connect the dots. And let me just say, out of all the books that have been written, out of all the teachings, all the sermons of anyone who's ever connected the dots for 2,000 years, guess what? Everyone's been wrong all of the time. So you may think, no, but this time's different, Pass. I really figured it out. You didn't really figure it out. You really didn't. Everyone's wrong all of the time. No one knows. But what does Jesus tell us? He says, live as if I'm coming soon, because I am coming soon, and quickly. And he says, be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to suffer. Not be prepared for X, Y, Z. Be prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the name of Jesus. And then he says, there's fuel for that. How do you willingly suffer? How do you willingly lay down your life? Well, you have to know that Christ is king, that he approached the ancient of days and all authority in heaven on earth now belong to him so that whatever befalls your body in your life, 
whatever is done to you, whatever wrong has been committed to you, however you're persecuted, even if you're persecuted unto death, the one who holds all authorities will vindicate you. You will rise, you will enter into glory, and whatever earthly sufferings you experience will be insignificant to what has been prepared for you. So Christian, be prepared to suffer, be alarmed, don't be fooled. Now, last thing. So real quick hypothetical. What if you could know? What if you actually were right? You figured it out. You connected the dots. And you know someone in this, like some one of you guys, no, Jesus Christ coming back next year. I figured it out. It's next year. I don't know the month. I don't know the day, but next year. If you knew Christ was coming back next year, would you live differently than you do right now? Now, don't answer that. It's a hypothetical. Like, what if, what if you knew he was coming back next year? Would you, would you and ought you live differently? Because he's coming back soon and quickly, like a thief in the night and when you least expect it. So if you knew Christ was coming back next year, would you, would you tell your kids you love them with more intensity this evening? I love you so much. Or uh, if you knew he was coming back next year, would you say, when you prayed over your kids, would you pray with more fervor? Lord, bless my children. I just want them to know you and serve you. Lord, bless these, protect these babies. I trust you. Would you have more fervor in your prayers for your children if you knew he was coming back next year? Or what about if I knew Christ was coming back next year? You know what? I call my brother and try to reconcile with him. We haven't talked for 10 years, and if we reconciled after that, I should, I should probably share the gospel with him because he doesn't know the Lord. Yeah, I'm going to do that because Christ is coming back next year. Dude, he can come back tomorrow. He can come back before the end of the day. He's going to come like a thief in the night when you least expect it. So what more ought you to do knowing Christ were to come back in a year? Would you do more knowing that he's already told you he's coming back soon quickly and you don't know? So by all means, tell your kids you love them with utmost urgency. Pray over them with utmost fervor. Call your brother and reconcile and share the gospel because tomorrow might be too late. That's why Jesus says he's coming quickly. So we live with that urgency and fervor with every day because the day of the Lord is today. What are you to do in light of all of this Christian in a crazy world? Don't be fooled. Don't be alarmed. Don't listen to false teachers. Be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to preach the gospel and entrust your whole self, body, soul, and spirit to your king who has been given all dominion and all authority. Let's stand as we take communion.